0: Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE 30 So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE 30
1: Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds.
0: As the Irish Revolution came to an end, large parts of the north Roscommon town of Arigna lay in ruins. However, the burned and charred buildings masked a fascinating history. While war and revolution had swept across Ireland over previous years, few places had shared Arigna's experience of this conflict. Beginning with an occupation of local mines... By workers demanding better conditions, this began years of intense and bitter conflict in Arigna. While these events were labelled the Arigna Soviet, even this dramatic name fails to capture this unique and remarkable story of war and revolution in a rural Irish town. This is the story of the Arigna Soviet. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn DeWire. Today's episode, which explores the fascinating history of the Arigna Soviet, does have an unlikely backstory. While it recounts the fascinating story of a worker's struggle in North Roscommon, it originated in very different surroundings. Over two years ago, when I was recording the series Ireland's Last Aristocrat in Strokes Town Park House, the stately home of the Mahan family, Oshino Driscoll, who featured in that series told me he was working on some research on a very different type of history. While we walked around Strokes Town Park House, Oshin told me about his research on the Origna Soviet, and I was gripped from the outset. By the day's end, we had made a rough plan to record an episode on the Soviet when Oshin's research was complete. Now, earlier this year, that finally came to pass, and we had a perfect occasion to record today's episode. Oshin got in touch with the Origna mining experience which has now made one of the mines in Arigna accessible to the public and they generously allowed us to record part of this episode in a mine. While you're about to hear the incredible story of the Arigna Soviet, Oisin has also published his research in a new Irish Labour History Society collection of essays called Labour History in Irish History. I have links to this in the show notes below. It's well worth checking out. Finally, I'd like to thank Oshin for his time in recording today's episode and Jerry Cullen from the Arigna Mining Experience for bringing us through the mine in Arigna. If you want to visit these mines yourself, check out the links to the Arigna Mining Experience in the show notes below. I have that linked as well. sound on today's show was by Kate Dunley. Now we began the story of the Arigna Soviet. Standing on the slopes outside the mine entrance at Arigna, where Oisin vividly described the landscape and its history, which play an important part in this story.
2: Yeah, it's an extremely dramatic view from up here, you know. So we're basically in north Ruscommon, on the ruscommon Leitrim border. We're up basically on the steps, on the ascent of the Kilrónan mountain. And we're looking back down over the Arigna Valley. The Arigna River runs through here, which is where the name comes from. From here you can see the village of Arigna, which is nestled right down at the foot of the hill and across you can see Loch Allen and behind that is Schlievernier and the famous Iron Mountain the name the, the mountain that Leitrim actually gets its name from the Leitrim like Grey Hill Iron Mountain is that whole connection and there's really I mean there's hundreds of years of mining heritage in this area so as the name would imply there historically have been iron deposits found in Schlievernier and in other mountains around this area so going way back to like in the 17th century, there's evidence of small-scale iron mining. That then picks up in the 18th century. In the late 18th century, there's an effort to expand iron mining around Schlieveneirn. The Latouche family were a famous banking family. I believe their name is an old Huguenot name, but they were based in Dublin. Initially, basically, they're cutting down all the old hazel trees, all the old native forestry on the mountain is cut down to feed the hungry iron foundry, the ironworks. Once they've burnt through that, they then start moving on to the coal deposits. So, of course, if you think, like, this is late 18th century, this is before coal really becomes, you know, the, the, the vital fuel on which the world kind of functions for the next 130 or 40 years or so. At that point, the coal is much less valuable than the iron, so it's really only used to feed the ironworks. But that's the very beginning of coal mining in this area.
0: The story of the Arigna Soviet is in part, at least, intrinsically linked to the working conditions in the mines. Today, the Arigna mining experience allows you to enter an old mine shaft and Jerry Cullen, a former miner and guide, brought me and Oshin down into the mine. As we made our way through dark tunnels, Oshin explained what mining was like here in the past. Now you're going to hear a dramatic change in sound as we moved down into the shaft.
2: This mine we're in now, the one that visitors actually get to visit if they come to the Irigna mining experience, is a mine that was never really used to actually dig out coal and that is very different to most of the mining that was done here. As you've said, we're in a shaft that's a good three metres wide, two and a half metres tall, so there's plenty of space to walk. This was not the case for most of the mines that I actually worked in, especially when you go back to the 1920s. So the actual seam of coal that was mined for the most part in Irigna is really, like, by international standards, very small. I mean, you're talking... We can see it near the entrances you are coming in. It's really three or four feet at its widest. And what that meant was that the coal mining, for the most part, was getting down into those kind of shafts that required you to crawl. It's no room to stand, literally like four, three or four feet long, crawling along on your side using a pickaxe, chipping away at it, drawing it back out then with a shovel to your, your work colleague who would be then manually loading it into what they called a hutch, which is essentially a, a cart that would then be pushed, basically, back to, to the main track, where then it would be pulled by rope up. Now, of course, we go back to the 1920s, actually, it would pretty much have all been then manually carted. So you're talking about incredible darkness dripping water, pooling water underneath you. You've got dust, you've got coal dust. You also have a lot of problems with silica dust. There's a lot of silica in the in the stone around here, which can be very, very bad for your lungs. So you're in complete darkness using candles. You're with a pickaxe manually chipping away at the coal, drawing it back around you. It's always cramped. It's always damp. It's always cold. And then, you know, fa- physically pushing it back out then. As i covered a bit in my research, you know, there's a railway eventually built in the 1890s, but it never actually comes right up to the, to the actual coal, to the pithead. So, I mean, there's still a lot of manual carting for a long time that's done until during the First World War, when it's extended closer to the mines. Up until then, it required carters to push it three or four kilometres then down before it could be loaded to trains. So up until that point, almost everything is being done. They would have used donkeys and carts sometimes, but the, almost all the labour is done... It's human powered, if you know what I mean. There's very little help from any kind of mechanical or other kind of forms of energy.
0: Just to explain to people at home, now I'm crouching. We've come down to a quite a narrow tunnel that we're making our way through. And I think Jerry is here with us who worked in these mines in a later phase than what we're going to talk about today. But he's just going to turn on some of the sounds, and you'll hear a bit what it would have been like in these mines back. Just to give you some sense, maybe listening at home, the noise. <coughs> In the dim light of the mineshaft, those noises gave me a much better sense of how difficult working conditions were. The noise only added to the sense of claustrophobia and general disorientation and discomfort. Now while these difficult working conditions provided a context for the Arigna Soviet, like so many aspects of the Irish Revolution, it was the impact of World War I, which was keenly felt in Arigna, that set in train events that would lead to so much upheaval and violence in this town.
2: 1914, in Britain, war is declared. One of the first, biggest changes initially is that a huge amount of miners in Wales and Scotland leave the mines. They join the army, they head off to the front. This reads an immediate crisis because, for one thing, the British Navy, especially, and the British Army have a hugely elevated need for coal, and suddenly all the experienced miners are joining the army. So this leads to what's basically called the coal crisis. So 1914, quickly, they bring in what's called the Munitions Act. The Munitions Act essentially marks key industries and brings in like extremely draconian rules to try and basically make sure these industries continue to function throughout the war. Coal miners are essentially banned from quitting their jobs. They're banned from joining the army. Uh, Limits are placed on trade union organization. And all of this is about securing the coal supply. And now as the war continues, there's still issues. There's still labor issues. There's still issues with shortages of coal. There's a lot of then... Conflict and tension still between the big powerful mining unions and the mine owners and eventually as we get into 1916 and it actually only comes into force in 1917 even though the decision is made in 1916 they begin to do something that Three years before would have been completely unimaginable. The Liberal government in London bring in functionally temporary nationalization of all the coal mines in Britain and Ireland So 1917, state control comes in. This is something that the coal miners and their unions have been looking for for a long time. Unsurprisingly, of course, the mine owners were opposed to it. But yeah, essentially, as this emergency wartime measure, all the coal mines are brought under the direct control of the government. There's a new position known as the coal controller set up at the Board of Trade. So state control comes in, this temporary nationalisation. It's a very radical step. But there are also caveats, right? The the unions don't get exactly the form of nationalisation that they had actually wanted. So... Essentially, the mine owners are given what is really a pretty sweet deal, the government agrees to continue paying them based on the profits they were making at the point that state control came in. And also, if you think about this, this is a period where there's the war is on, so it's actually inflated prices. So they were making huge profits before they lost control of the mine. And even during the period of state control, the coal mine owners continue to be compensated very, very generously. And they're also given a lot of assurances by the Liberal government that, you know, this is temporary. This isn't going to come. This isn't going to last, basically. However, from the miners' perspective, this works out pretty well for them. So for the first time now, we have wages for miners being set centrally by the Board of Trade. It's not really a minimum wage, but it is, I mean, it is collective bargaining on a larger scale. The vast majority of this mines, this means pay increases, right? So miners are doing better than they had been doing before. There's also another big change is that because profits are now being pooled centrally, historically undercapitalized, underdeveloped mines, like in Arrigna particularly, suddenly have access to a lot of money that they didn't have before because that had always been an issue here as well was the struggle to find investment and the lack of capital. So within Arigna, you've got, during this period, wages are increasing, even though the miners, keep in mind, they're also under that rule that prevents them leaving their jobs. So I don't think a huge amount of the miners from Arigna were seeking to join the British Army, so it wasn't as much of an issue for them. But their wages are going up the train extension, the railway extension, they've been looking for for a long time, finally happens. So the railway line is extended by 1920 to actually come up basically to the entrance to the mines where they were at that time, which makes their job a little bit easier at least. It also means the profits from the coal mine are going to presumably increase. It's also, I mean, it's worth keeping in mind as well that miners then and right into the 1990s were not paid like an hourly rate they were paid based on per ton of coal they were able to actually remove so what that means is that as the mine becomes more efficient as it becomes a little bit more developed they're able to move coal out faster so their wages are also increasing from that end as well so i mean from the miners perspective state control is brilliant it works fantastically wages go up their power their ability to negotiate increases their control over their own livelihoods increases
0: As we moved back out of the mine, we stood overlooking the Origna Valley and Oisín continued the story. The end of World War I spelled uncertainty in mining communities across Britain and Ireland. The nationalisation that had been so good for miners had only been introduced as a temporary war measure, so when peace returned, the government began to prepare to hand the mines back to their original owners. Further to this, there was also talk about wage cuts for the miners. Naturally, the mining unions prepared to resist these moves. This would lead to major conflict, but mining unions in Britain suffered a major defeat when miners were forced to accept lower wages and worse conditions. However, in Arigna, events took a very different course of action. Oshin explains what happened in North Roscommon at the end of the First World War. In Arigna. 1918,
2: we have the miners becoming affiliated with the ITGWU. At this time, the local leader in that is a guy called Thomas Cullen. Thomas Cullen is the union organizer. He seems to have been a very effective, very good organizer. He gets the miners unionized. Throughout 1918 to 1920, there's a series of negotiations and successes. The miners seem to get success after success. You find multiple reports in newspapers throughout that period, wages increasing, they're winning battles over conditions. And by 1921, they are really seem to be at the height of their confidence, right? They are fully conscious, I suppose, of their power and the power they have relative to the mine owners. So, that march, we basically have the state control is announced it's going to end. The rigna Mining Company knows they're going to get control of the mines again. The wage is set centrally by the coal controller. That's going to end. They announce pay cuts that are going to come in once they retake the mines. They announce that this is happening. And immediately the workers essentially reject that. At this point, the first of these strikes begins. Now this is called, in some sources, a lockout, so it's a little bit unclear as to what exactly is happening. The workers obviously are refusing to accept the pay cut, and they're either going on strike or the miners are actually locking them out. But at any rate, there's this period where the mines are closed down from March into April. But as we get to the end of April, this is when the miners in Origna decide to do something really radical. As we get into the end of the month, the 1st, first, 2nd first, of May, the miners come together, They elect a strike committee, they march down to the pit head and they, by force, take over the mine and declare a worker's Soviet. They take it over and begin basically, under their own direction, under the supervision of this strike committee, going in, mining, bringing out the coal, selling it themselves against the wishes of the company.
0: Key to the occupation was the support the miners received from the local community. They were the ones buying the coal from the worker's Soviet, now running the mine.
2: The company goes around issuing these notices that they've had printed out. There's records of them handing them out of the area, putting them up, that say, you know, or my number one has been taken over and is being worked by persons without the consent of the company. Therefore, if you buy coal from them, you're breaking the law. There's actually one of these ends up in the National Archives because it's sent up to the head office of the ITGWU. It comes with a handwritten note written by one of the strike committee basically saying that, Not only is no one listening to these notices, but the company couldn't even find anyone locally willing to put them up for them or hand them out. So basically it seems that people are completely ignoring it and people seem to have been perfectly happy to continue buying coal from the miners during the period where they're in control.
0: Part of the success of the Soviet unquestionably related to the wider political landscape. The War of Independence was entering its most intense phase when the mine was occupied. The police, the Royal Irish Constabulary, had long-lost influence and control In Arigna, however, the authorities did respond by launching a few military raids into the region, led by the British Army.
2: The police, from an early point, had essentially abandoned this area, and even then, in 1920, there is an incident where there is a big raid. The British Army come into Arigna. They drive around for a while. They eventually actually come up to the mine. They bring the miners out. They're subject them to what is referred to as a rough interrogation. And then they go off, and as they're leaving, they fire on, like, fire shots at the local Sinn Féin headquarters, and they do, I believe, they injure someone, but don't kill someone doing that. So that's one incident. Then, later on, we have an incident where they're coming in, they're looking for air guys, but they are so confused, they're so lost, they can't find anything up here. So they end up resorting to a tactic that you see, you know, the British forces use in other areas as well, where essentially they start kidnapping random civilians and holding them hostage in an attempt to get... The IRA men are hiding to come out, a famous incident, they abduct a man who's in his like late 70s in an attempt to force his son to come out of hiding. I mean, this fails, they don't basically capture them. And from that point on, by the start of 1921, the British army functionally has abandoned this area. There is no state forces present here at all.
1: A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend, but what won't change? Needing health insurance.
0: The company did enter negotiations with the workers' representatives in Dublin to try and resolve the situation.
2: Yeah, so the Soviet remains in control of the coal mines throughout May, June, that summer. And then by the start of July, there is another round of negotiations between the strike committee, or rather between representatives of the strike committee and representatives from the main office of the ITGW, from headquarters. This occurs in Dublin, there's this conference, Essentially, I mean, there's a report on it at the time, like the concessions the miners win are incredible. Like not only they get an effective increase on what they've been paid during the war, that's what they're actually promised, they also get a reference to them being reimbursed for the improvements they've made during their period in control of control in the mine. So the mining company is basically paying them for, for the work they've been doing on the mines while they weren't there. So this is a total victory for the, for the ITW and for the miners and a complete capitulation on the part of the Erigno Mining Company. However, there's evidence that the mining company know this isn't really over, right? So at the time, there are two main specific coal mines that they're working. There's their mine number one, which is the older, the larger one. And then there's mine number two. Mine number two is described as one of the most promising shafts in the area. There's supposed to be very good quality coal coming out of it. And this is a new one as well. So they're really beginning to dig into this one. So this mine is subject to constant flooding. So it's constantly filling with water. And so they are constantly having to pump water out. So they have pumps at the entrance. And otherwise, this mine is basically submerged underwater. It's unworkable. One of the first things the mining company do when they get control is they go down, they disassemble those pumps, they take them away.
0: Now, this move of dissembling the pumps indicated the mining company were preparing for further conflict with the mine union. By removing this equipment, they were ensuring in the event of another takeover of the mine by the workers, they would not be able to use it. Now, this renewed conflict did indeed break out a few months later when the mining company broke the deal they had agreed with the miners.
2: So basically, in September, they renege on the deal. They unilaterally declare that another round of pay cuts coming in. Now, I mean, their argument, basically what they're saying is that exports, coal exports all over the world are down... A lot of this actually is related to Germany, not importing coal anymore because the German economy is in such a disastrous state. But anyway, coal exports, coal coal prices are dropping. They're saying we can't afford to pay these wages. So they unilaterally break the deal. They say we're bringing in these pay cuts. And predictably enough, another strike breaks out. And as we get to the end of September, sort of leaning into the beginning of October, another occupation occurs, basically. The workers come down again, they take over the mine and uh, yeah, the second occupation begins. And this, I think, is one of the really interesting parts of this story is this distinction between the first one, the traditional, the Soviet, the more well-known one, the more well-remembered one. And this second, more complex and kind of unusual occupation, right, that starts in October 21 and goes on into, I mean, well into 1922 until basically the following
0: summer. The occupation this time was not just a worker's occupation, but it had a political dimension as it took place under the direction of the local IRA. Oisín continues the story.
2: Joseph Cullen is one of our main sources about this second occupation. And he is also, by this point, a lieutenant in the local IRA column. Joseph basically, in court, states under oath that in October 1921, he came down with... Members of the IRA ordered the miners to get back to work. He states that at that time, the actual union organiser, Thomas Cullen and others, were in favour of a return to work, but that he went down and ordered them not to do that and instead to kick out the company and to begin working the mines under his direction, in his authority as an officer of the IRA.
0: Oisín elaborated on this second occupation and how it was different from the first, given it was explicitly political.
2: I believe that at this point the coal mining is on a smaller scale right so there's only I think a smaller amount of people actually working the mine. I suspect that a lot of those who are still involved in the occupation who are still directly digging the coal out are miners who are also affiliated with the republican movement which is a significant minority of the overall population of miners right so these are the ones who are more committed to it who are more kind of radical. And I mean, they state themselves that they're selling the coal to support the families of local soldiers. That's the phrase that the miners themselves used to describe what they're doing.
0: Given the IRA were now effectively running the mine, or at least exerted huge influence over its operation, the mine in Arigna was inevitably drawn into the wider Irish civil war between two factions of the Republican movement, which began in June 1922. Oisín starts by explaining how the civil war unfolded in the region, beginning in the nearby town of Boyle.
2: There's about two days of pretty intense street fighting in Boyle. Eventually, as was the pattern across a lot of the country, the anti-treaty IRA are forced into retreat. They flee out from Boyle. They go into the countryside. Something that they actually did in a lot of other areas as well, they initially go and they occupy big houses. They occupy, for example, Rockingham, which is uh, near Boyle, between Boyle and Carg and Shannon. And then, essentially, in the days following... The anti-GRA begin, in this area, a controlled retreat, and cleverly enough, they head straight to Aurigna. This is the ideal place. If you're going to start fighting a small-scale guerrilla war against a larger conventional army, you could not pick a better location to do it. This area is full of mountains, it's full of small roads, little valleys, ambush points, and another major factor hundreds of years of mining heritage. So there's abandoned mines, some that are really old
0: that aren't even on any maps. You've
2: also got cave networks.
0: This retreat would lead to a wider occupation of the area, where Republicans established a defensive camp in and around Arigna.
2: One of the first things that they do is that they take over the home of the mine manager, a guy whose name was Kennedy. John John Kennedy actually was his name. So they arrive, they evict him from his house, they take it over, and basically make this their base of operations. It's initially used as a sort of an officer's quarters and an actual sort of headquarters command, I suppose, station. And they set up a very dispersed camp, I suppose you would say, it, or a concealed camp, right? So the anti treaty IRA fighters are spread out all over the mountain range, many of them sleeping in caves, sleeping in old mines, a number of them are sleeping in the old mining buildings as well.
0: This naturally now made Arigna a major target for the National Army. Things start to turn
2: towards the end of the summer, 1922. So in August of 1922, there is the first of the major National Army raids into the area. So this is when the National Army come in on force. They arrive at Kennedy, the mine manager's house, they find there what they describe as a field hospital. They say that there's a medical student, a guy named Gallagher, and there's three members of Cominamon acting as nurses. The actual wounded IRA men seem to have evacuated. Most of the IRA had managed to go and hide in the mountains before they got there. But they discover, you know, a functioning field hospital that's been set up in the mountains, which is just an evidence of how you know, developed this camp was and how entrenched this force was. So they clear this hospital, they arrest the, the people there, they then, searching around the area, they come across Joseph Cullen, who I mentioned earlier. Joseph Cullen seemingly was basically at his mum's house. They capture
0: him. This is the, the key IRA officer in the area. Yeah, yeah,
2: this is the guy who's the self-described leader of the Soviet and, yeah, one of the senior officers in the local anti-Treaty IRA. So they find him at his parents' home. He's basically brought out. He's made their prisoner. And unintentionally, that results in him becoming a witness to, to what plays out over the next few hours. As they're bringing him along... They're searching the mountain. As I said, you know, the, the area is so perfect for guerrilla warfare. The anti-Tudor Antichirchira, as soon as they know the National Army are coming, are able to just melt into the countryside, go into the caves, go into the mines. They disappear functionally, even though there's like at least 200 of them at this point, And there's more as it goes on. So as they're searching, they come across mine number two, right? So this is the mine that has been subject to the flooding. The officer... The Afrique National Army officer presiding states that he sees what looked to him to be fresh boot tracks at the entrance to the mine. He therefore comes to the conclusion that there are anti Tudor guys hiding in it. According to his own testimony, without really giving any warning or attempting to search the mine, they take between three and seven grenades, depending on who's describing it, and they chuck them in and basically collapse the entrance of the mine, destroying it, essentially making it inaccessible. Fortunately, in this instance, as far as we're aware, there's no one inside. It is actually empty. This is also related to the fact that it's only the first few metres that are dry. Once you go really into the mine at that point because the pumping equipment was gone, it would have been flooded.
0: The end of the revolution in Arigna came in early 1923 in dramatic and violent events which started with a pretty small robbery in the town of Ballyconnell across the border in County Cavan.
2: February 1923, a number of men from the Arigna column are in Ballyconnell. One of them, a man called Michael Cull, is essentially conducting a hold-up, right? So he's holding a hardware store owner at gunpoint. It's part of a robbery. I mean, this is also an element of it, right? There's an element of, of um, what you could call banditry, I suppose, going on as well. There's people, there's, there's elements of like, yeah, basically like uh, robbery going on too, right? Michael Cull is holding up this shor- store when an off-duty free state officer comes in, sees him, opens fire, kills him. In the aftermath of this, Michael Cole's brother James Cole, who's a very prominent member of the anti-treaty IRA in the area of the Arigna Column he enraged leads a group down they have vehicles right so they arrive in a truck and essentially they do a huge amount of damage in Ballyconnell they uh, kill the Free State officer who had killed Michael Cole. they wound at least one other civilian and they burn the building of the guy whose store was being robbed it, it's pretty nasty right it's a revenge attack like that is, that is occurring it's a reprisal I suppose you could say And this basically is, I mean, this is kind of the final straw, I suppose, from the perspective of the free state. This has already become a real thorn in their side, this Arigna area. It's seen as such bandit country, so 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 uncontrolled. And the sack of Ballyconnell essentially provokes uh, an an inevitable reaction. This is when you have the massive raid. A special military area is declared across Leitrim and Roscommon. You have at least 600 National Army troops are invested in the area and a massive sweep begins. It's during this fighting, close quarters, nasty cave clearing fighting going on in the mountains that, again, James called the guy's brother had been killed, and a guy called Timon are killed when the National Army blow up the cave, the, the dugout they're hiding and in, collapse getting them, burying them alive essentially. The fighting then, this kind of thing continues. There's a rumour that goes around that gets reported in the local papers that as many as 25 IRA men have been buried alive in caves like this. That's an exaggeration, definitely. That That's a, that's a rumour, but you can see where it's coming from, right? Because it's coming from the fact that the tactics are pretty extreme. I mean, it's an example of just how nasty and bitter the fighting has become by this point. Eventually, during this raid, over the following weeks, the leadership of the Erickland Column are rounded up. Ned Boffin is the, the famous name associated with it. They're wound up. The force is essentially broken, dispersed. That is essentially then the end of the anti-treaty activity in this area. And and for the first time, really, since late 1920, the Rigna district is brought back under the control of a central authority. And it is, I mean, the area has been devastated by that point. So if we think, like, the mining company... Their buildings have been destroyed. They actually blame a lot of that destruction on the National Army because the National Army, during their raids, were smashing equipment. They were throwing things down the hill, all because they didn't want it to be used by the anti-treaty forces. So they've ransacked a bunch of the buildings. The best mine has been flooded. A huge amount of the miners have fled or are in prison. Uh, And a good number of them are dead, of course, as well. And I mean, yeah, the area is devastated. Like The mining company retake control. There's evidence they produce later a list of their employees at this time They say, according to them, that from uh, having about 120 employees in 1920 by 1923, they have about 25 men employed altogether. And when we look at the nominal roles of the IRA, we can see from that period, we can see the effect that that has because it's just next to so many of the names. It's either deceased or address on no one or USA. A huge amount of the miners have had to leave, had to uh, emigrate to seek employment. And, I mean, really, throughout the rest of the 1920s, there's very minimal coal mining operations going on in the area and the rebuilding is only really just beginning during that period.
0: The mines in Origna would reopen and continued in operation until the 1990s. Today, one of the mines has been converted into the Origna mining experience where you can actually get a tour of the mine itself. It's really worth visiting and the views alone are astounding. The mine is dug into the side of a hill that overlooks a very dramatic landscape. And as you look down over the Origna Valley beneath you, you can get a sense of how this history played out. Now I'd like to thank Usheen for his time and to Jerry Collin from the Origna Mining Experience for bringing us through the mine. Usheen's research is available in an article in the new book Labour History and Irish History. I've links to that in the show notes below. Until next time, Sloan.